Our scripture this morning is uh, the end of Philippians 1 and the beginning of Philippians 2. We're going to be looking at verses 27 all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. So give ear now. This is God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. This is God's Word. So when will I be happy with my life? Right, that's the question that we've been looking at these last few weeks. We've been looking at different answers, things that we think will answer that question. And we've been looking and seeing what does Paul have to say about those answers. And it's because all of us are under the impression that happiness is just out of our reach. Right? It's just barely within our grasp. And if we can just cause something to happen, if we can just do something, then we can finally get happiness. Right? And so we've been talking about this idea that I'll be happy when, and we're filling in the blank. Well, today we're looking at the idea that I'll be happy when I'm understood. Okay? I will finally be happy when I'm understood. When people around me get me, when they understand who I am, when they understand where I'm coming from, then I'll finally be happy. I think all of us think this to some degree or another. We all want to be known. We all want to be understood. Uh, there was a television show in the 80s and 90s called Cheers, right? How many of you saw that show once? I mean, everybody, right? It was a national. It, it caused a, a, a phenomenon because you had this group of people um, who got together at a bar, and that bar was like their community group. It was their community, and, uh, and they had this amazing sense. And I think the song might have been even more popular than the show. The song sort of took off and, you know, everybody kind of knows the jingle, but the, the, the lyrics really said it all. It's, it said, you want to be where people are and your, our troubles are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name, right? Your name. And I mean, that's symbolic, right? You want to be in a place where you're understood, right? Where, where people get you, sort of warts and all, problems and all. We want to feel this way because we all have problems want to feel like we always have to be on, right? Do you feel that way? Do you feel like you always have to be performing or acting in a certain way or, or trying to earn the favor of the people around you? You, you? That gets really tiresome. You get really tired really fast. And this idea is that you want to be in a place where you're known, you're understood, because that means you're accepted, right? That's what we want. Um, now, the problem is, if that really is the answer, that you just need to be understood, well, then where's your focus? 
Right? Your focus is on yourself, first of all, but then your focus is on making yourself understood. Right? Because the only way anybody's ever going to understand you, right, is if you explain yourself to them. Do you know anybody like this? Do you have parts of your life where you are like this, where you are striving to get other people to understand you? I mean, this really doesn't lead to happiness, right? Actually, it leads to you being pushy. It leads to being obnoxious. It makes you controlling because you can't, you can't rest, you can't be happy until people understand you. And so what we're going to see today, I'm going to tell you, don't wait to be understood to be happy. Okay, if you're waiting to be understood, stop. Okay, the gospel calls us to understand others. Okay, not to be understood, but to understand others as the key to happiness. That's what the gospel is, is telling us is going to make us happy. That's what Paul is going to be saying is going to make us happy. You know, Cheers created this amazing phenomenon because if you ever watched the show, if you got into the show, you felt happy. You felt like you were part of the gang at Cheers. Right? You felt you were one of them because you knew Cliff. You knew Norm. You said Norm when he walked in like everybody on the show did. Right? I mean, you had this sense. And it's funny because you didn't have this sense of happiness about the show because the characters on the show understood you. Right? You had this sense of happiness because you understood them. Because you felt like you knew them. And so that's, that's where Paul's going to aim us in our passage. Paul's talking all about unity in our text, and we're going to see that this unity only comes through understanding others. Okay, we're going to look at it in three points today. Um, first, we're going to see that understanding others brings unity in the church. Okay, then second, we're going to see that understanding others brings unity with the world. And then third, understanding others comes from being understood by God. Okay, and I'll give you these again when we hit them in the sermon. So first of all, understanding others brings unity in the church. This is verse 27. Paul says, only of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this can throw us for a loop, right? Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Wait a second. I thought the gospel was a gift, right? I thought salvation was a free gift. It was a free offer. Why are we talking about being worthy gospel? Are any of us worthy of the good news that Jesus died for sinners? Has anybody earned that? I haven't. I think that's what a lot, a lot of people feel like that's probably part of the problem with the church is that you have this church full of people who think they're worthy of the gospel, right? Um, and that's, that's not where Paul's aiming us here. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul isn't saying that you're worthy be, by earning the gospel. He's talking about being characterized by it, okay? He's saying walk worthy of having received it. So if you have received the gospel, he's saying live as though you have received the gospel. And if the gospel is a gift, if it's a free gift that you didn't earn, gifts ought to make us humble, right? Because we didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. It was given to us as a gift. And so Paul is saying the worthy walk in this passage means a walk in unity, okay? It means a walk in unity. And so Paul says we need to stand for unity in verse 27, And he also says we need to strive for unity in verse 27. So first we stand. We stand for unity. Paul says, I want to hear whether I come and see you or I'm absent. I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Okay? Standing in one spirit. This isn't just standing in one spirit, but it's it's actually standing in the spirit. Okay? Paul's talking here 
about the Holy Spirit. He's saying that if you believe in Jesus, you, along with everyone else who believes in Jesus, are standing in the same place. Okay? You are standing in the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit is what makes us Christians, and this unites us together. You've got to realize in Paul's mind, in Paul's day, Christianity wasn't a national phenomenon. It wasn't a worldwide religion. It was a tiny thing that had just begun in Jerusalem and was beginning to spread out from there. And so Paul is telling these Philippians, he's saying, you need to realize that out of all of the things that characterize you in the world, there is one thing that you all have in common. You all have the Holy Spirit. And that unites you in a way that is more important than anything else that could separate you. Okay? Your unity comes from the fact that you are following Christ, that you are Christians. And it's more than that. The Holy Spirit actually makes us a family, makes us a family. The Bible says that when the Holy Spirit comes, it teaches us that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters. We are the family of God, and we need to stand together as a family. So that means that we need to love and rejoice with everyone who calls themselves a Christian, everyone who has the Holy Spirit. Now, to do this well, we have to realize some things, right? This is where understanding becomes so important. It's true that the Holy Spirit makes us all Christians, but the Holy Spirit makes us also different because the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, works in us differently, right? How many people do you know who are Christians and are different from you? Right? And maybe, I mean, and radically different from you, right? We need to recognize that. The Bible says in another place that it's like a body, right? That if you are a Christian, you're put into the body of Christ, which is all one body, but it's got many members. You've got arms that do certain things, legs do other things, a pancreas does something, an appendix does something, eyes, mouth, ears, incredibly different things where if you took them off a body and put them in a row, you'd say these things have nothing in common, right? And yet when they work together, when they work together, they, they live out. There's a unity there because they're part of the same body, because we're part of the same family. You know, and we realize that this is important because Jesus warns us that if we don't live in this unity, then we're going to fail. We're going to fall apart. And Jesus said a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Right? If we are not united as a church, then we will fail. A body divided against itself can't stand. Right? Um, yeah, and we see this. No one likes the church when it's divided. Right? Nobody does. No one likes it. No one respects the church's divisions. And so if we're not united, it's like the world has every reason to ignore us. Okay, and I'm trying to drive home why, how important this is. You know, and, and it's funny because the people that I've met who aren't part of the church, they get that there's going to be differences in the church. They get that not everybody's the same because they're not all the same, right? They understand there's different approaches to things in Christianity. There's different ways of doing things. There's different worship styles. There's different you know, liturgical styles. There's different, even some different theological beliefs that sort of fall under the range of acceptability. They understand that. The issue for most people outside the church is how do you disagree, right? How, how do you disagree, 
Are you rude to other people who disagree with you? Are you charitable? Are you kind? I mean, how do you, do you, do you, do you live in this unity? Do you stand united with everyone else who names the name of Jesus? That's what Paul, you know, that's what Paul's aiming at here. And I think really this is our biggest struggle. It's relationships, you know, and all, and as always, the problem isn't outside, it's inside, it's in the church. There's a great quote, one of my favorite quotes from the Lord of the Rings books. Um, One of the elves, not Legolas, but one of the other elves said this. He said, in nothing is the power of the enemy more clearly shown than in the fighting that divides those who oppose him. You get that? It's a little bit. In nothing is the power of the enemy more clearly shown than in the fighting that divides those who oppose him. I just think, wow, this is so true. This is so true. If you ask people, you know, what do you think the biggest problem in the church is? A lot of people say, well, it's all the divisions. If you guys can't figure this out, why would I want to join that? If you guys can't get along with each other, what is that? And so Paul is saying, you've got to stand united. And I want to push us a step farther because I think that generally at Harbor, we do a pretty good job of not making fun of other churches. I think we do a pretty good job of... of not going after other churches. We, we do try to seek unity and partnerships with other churches and other expressions of Christianity. But let me push a step further. And I think unity isn't just getting along, right? It's not just tolerance. But do you know and appreciate what the Spirit of God is doing in the lives of other people? Well, let's just talk about here at Harbor Downtown. Do you know and appreciate what God is doing in the lives of of the other people here. It takes work, right? And, and maybe maybe you do know a sense of what's going on in the lives of people who are like you. But again, it pushes us. And what this pushes us to do is it, it's not just that we stand in unity, we have to strive for unity. That's why Paul says that, again, in verse 27. He says, you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's saying that, that our unity, we need to stand in our unity, but we have to fight for it too because there's things that come at us that cause us not to be unified. We have to fight to be unified. And so it's like we stand together, but we don't stand still. Okay, we also advance. We advance as we, as we strive. And so I guess for me, I, I've seen this most often or the, the, the negative sense of this in terms of teams, right? Have you ever seen a team that has been incredibly talented and yet fail because people aren't working together as a team? I mean, this happens in sports all the time. It happens at work. You know, people can't get along with each other. They're not striving together. You know, they're all working hard at something, but they're not pulling on the same rope in the same direction. You know, this happens in marriages all the time. All the time. Where you have people that aren't, they're just not on the same page. They're not working together. They're either at odds or they're just missing each other because they're ignoring it. They're not experiencing that one plus one equals three or one plus one equals four or five that happens when relationships, I mean, they call it synergy, you know, is the old business term. Well, to experience this kind of unity, to strive for this kind of unity, you need to first not seek to be understood, but you need to seek to understand. Okay, Stephen Covey in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, right? Right? Best-seller book, sold millions and millions of copies, distills 
you know, the most effective people in all of human history down to seven things. And one of his seven things is that these are people who seek to understand before they seek to be understood. Okay? And again, this is the dynamic that we're looking at, that unity comes, that happiness comes, not when you're understood, but when you seek to understand others. And so, again, to experience this unity, it's not about you telling other people your story, but it's about you listening to other people's story. Even here in our midst, we've got rich folks and poor folks. We have black and white folks. We've got um, homed and homeless folks. We have young and old. And the question is, do you know how God's spirit is working in the lives of people that aren't like you? Do you know what gives them joy? Do you know what makes them happy? Do you know what their struggles are? I mean, the gospel says that when you do this, when you seek to understand, not to be understood initially, when you seek to understand, something magical happens. You know, I mean, how many times have you had that experience where you really don't understand somebody that really puts you off, that you feel kind of repulsed by them in some way, or you just feel annoyed by them, and then you get to know them, and all of a sudden... With understanding comes love and friendship. You know, when you look at what the scriptures say about the importance of unity, Jesus said the world will know that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, if the church is unified. Paul puts the entire hope for the the testimony of the gospel in the lap of whether or not the church is going to be unified. It makes sense why the enemy would want to attack a sermon like this. I mean, I'm not trying to say anything big about me, but I mean, I'm saying that this is the kind of thing that the enemy doesn't want us to understand, that the enemy doesn't want us to live out in our lives. We just need to know that. Like, if we get a hold of this, this will revolutionize downtown. This will revolutionize every community that you live in, every relationship that you have, both in the church and outside the church. If we can grab a hold of this, and and that's the last thing the enemy wants us to do, it's the last thing that Satan wants from us, is for us to actually live, embrace, and strive forward to be unified with each other. Yeah, let's pray. Father, we come to you now wanting you to act here, knowing that we are all susceptible. And and God, maybe you've used this to wake some of us up because it's easy to tune out when the church talks about unity because we think we get it. We think we understand it. And yet, God, there's so much more that we need to do. There's so much farther that we need to go in terms of just loving each other here in this church, in our church. And so, God, help us now. Thank you for turning this off so that the distractions can be gone. Keep us engaged in this topic so that we can live this out, so that we can live out your love for the sake of your church and of your name. Amen. Amen. Well, here's a great quote from a guy who counsels in, in marriages. He says this. He says, if we don't feel understood in a relationship, our differences get magnified. We come to view each other as a threat to our happiness. We fight for self-worth, for significance, and the relationship becomes a battlefield rather than a place of rest. And what's interesting there is that he says, you know, if we don't feel understood in a relationship, right? Now, you can't make someone else understand you. The only power that you have is to understand the other person, Okay. You can't force somebody else, but you can start the process of mutual understanding by you going out of your way, by you taking the initiative to understand the other. Don't wait until you're understood. You take the initiative. That's what the gospel calls you to do. 
Same author goes on to say, understanding isn't the answer to everything, but it creates a climate of security in which we can seek answers to those things that bother us. In security of understanding, you can discuss differences without condemnation. We discover how to bring out the best in each other. The decision to understand holds tremendous potential. Boy, if that could just get a hold, if that could take hold in our hearts, it would change our marriages, our family, it would change our relationships, it would change our church. One author a few hundred years ago said this, in the important things, there needs to be unity. In the secondary things, there needs to be freedom. But in all things, there needs to be love and understanding. All right, that's point one, that understanding others brings unity in the church. Second, understanding others brings unity with the world. Brings unity with the world, verses 28 to 30. When we look out, Paul is real clear, and he's very honest about, uh, about the, the opposition that exists for the church in Philippi. In verse 28, he talks about opponents. In verse 29, he talks about suffering. In verse 30, he talks about conflict. And so I want to think through what is the opposition today that we face? And what kind of opposition do you face personally in your life? It seems like there's people who don't understand our faith that are in opposition. There's people who think that our faith is actually the cause of a lot of the world's problems. Uh, There's people who don't like our faith, who who understand it and don't like it. There's people who don't want us to share our faith or force it on other people, especially in the public sphere. And I think in light of that opposition, here's my best wisdom, is that uh, we should take the same approach to those folks that we do with each other in the church. And so the first step I would suggest is that we need to understand those who would oppose us. We need to understand the people who are outside. We need to understand the world and its concerns. Okay? I've had, I don't know how many conversations with people who have said, oh, I don't like Christianity or I don't believe in God or I think the, the church is really the, the source of problems in the world. You know, and instead of trying to make them understand my approach, what I've done is I've tried to understand what they mean. And I've said, oh, well, what do you mean by that? Or I've, sometimes I've said, well, which God don't you believe in? Or what problems do you see in the church that you oppose? And then I just listen. I listen and then they tell me, And so far for me, okay, this might not be true for everybody, so far for me, 10 times out of 10, right? This happened a lot more than 10 times. But so far, every single time, I've been able to say, gosh, you know what? I don't believe in a God like that either. Or, you know what? I I think you're right about that. And the church is guilty of that. And the church really ought to stop being that. Or, you know, I I think you're right. The church has contributed to that problem in the world. And, uh, and needs to own that and take responsibility for it and needs to figure out a way to not be that way anymore. Um, and then I've been able, and, and it's amazing because you say that and people are like, well, wait, hold on. I thought you're a pastor? Like, what do you mean? You can't, I've never met a pastor who would, who would admit that. You know, and I know people who aren't pastors who have said the same thing and they have the same response. Like, well, I, I'm, I'm, I don't have, I, I was ready for you to get defensive so I could pile on and continue to criticize you, but now you're accepting this and taking responsibility for it. I don't know what to do now. You know I've had that experience over and over and over again. 
And it's just because I'm trying to understand. Because, you know, there are people who have just internal, um, for whatever reason, hatred for the church that isn't legitimate. But there are a lot of people who have legitimate concerns because of experiences in their past, because of just truth about what the church is, that it's a broken place that's trying to find its way so often. And so you don't have to be defensive. You can seek to understand before you're understood. And I have found over and over and over again that when I do that, when I seek to understand people in the world, people outside the church who have problems, the relationship deepens. I get credibility. And what's amazing is I get a chance to tell them, hey, you know, at the same time while I admit that the church is flawed, I'm part of a church that's really trying to be part of what's right in the world. You know, and the God that I believe in is a God that, that, that believes in the city, that believes in, that has hope for the city, that has a vision to see community developed and to see people cared for and the poor ministered to and, you know, and, and reconciliation happening and businesses not taking advantage and government not being, you know, all these things. And it's amazing because it's like when we do this, we're creating new categories for people. So many people have one category. The church is this way. You know, it's actually the same way that a lot of Christians feel about non-Christians. Oh, all the non-Christians are the same, right? They're all like this. And then you get to know one and you're like, wait a second, that one's not exactly like that. I mean, the same thing happens the other way, that we get a chance to tell people there's, there are more than, one, there's more than one kind of Christian. There's more than one kind of church. And maybe the attitude that we have, the attitude that our church has, is part of maybe something that, would, that would, you'd actually want to find out about the God we believe in. You'd want to get to know the Jesus that we say we're following a little bit better. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, I've had conversations with over 30 of my neighbors, you know, some of whom have come to church, some of whom haven't yet, some of whom said they would, some of them, you know, would never, you know, and it's, just, it's amazing that with each and every one of them so far, <clears throat> the gospel is Jesus. They think, they think more of Jesus now than they did before. And it's just because I'm listening. It's just because I'm affirming with them the problems that they see in the world, in the church. And I'm saying, look, I'm trying to be part of what's right. And so I think the first thing that we do, and this actually does, can create unity with the world when we understand them before we seek to be understood. Before we seek to be understood. That's the kind of thing that causes people to then come back and go, now, why are you doing this? Why are you the way you are? Like, I've never met a Christian like you. I've never heard of a church like yours. These are things that happen here at Harbor, and it's because we have this attitude. And so we want to continue that. Now, um, here's one great quote. This is the greatest quote on this. It's from Tim Keller. Um, it says, when Christians and non-Christians have taken the time to understand each other, then, even if you remain the skeptic or the believer that you have been, you'll hold your own position with both greater clarity and greater humility. Then there'll be an understanding, a sympathy, and a respect for the other side that didn't exist before. Believers and non-believers will actually rise to the level of disagreement rather than simply denouncing one another. This happens when each side has learned to represent the other's argument in its strongest and most positive form. Only then is it safe and fair to disagree with it. And when that happens, it achieves civility in a pluralistic society. And that is no small thing. 
I mean, that's how you live and work and relate to people in a world that believes in everything. You understand before you seek to be understood. Okay, now we have to be honest. This doesn't always work out. You know, it doesn't always end up with you and, and your friend, you know, arm in arm strolling down, down the road together, right? <clears throat> Paul had incredible trouble <clears throat> in Philippi, right? He was captured there. He was uh, falsely accused. He was beaten with canes and then imprisoned in the stocks because his faith opposed some of the business practices in the city, okay? And so there are times when people are going to continue to be hostile toward you and to your faith no matter how understanding you are. No matter how far you go to understand, there are going to be people who will just oppose you and will seek to persecute you. And in those moments, that's all the more reason why we have to be unified. Why we have to be unified. Because Paul says that in our unity, then God speaks. Look at verse 28. Paul says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When the church is standing together, when it's striving together, God speaks to the opposition. Okay? When opposi- and Paul was living this out, right? All this opposition against him, and yet Caesar's own imperial guard is starting to believe. Okay? There was a person at the church in Philippi who, when read this, would have jumped up and said, yeah, 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 that's why I joined. You remember the jailer? If you, haven't, if you don't remember the Philippian jailer, if you read Acts 16, it tells a story about Paul when he got arrested, thrown in prison. He was beaten, all this horrible stuff, right? He's beaten, and the jailer's there. He's got him in jail. He's guarding the jail. That night, Paul and his friend Silas, they're in jail. It's at midnight, and they are singing praises to God. And then this earthquake comes, and all the prison doors are open, and everybody can escape. Right now, if you're the jailer and anybody escapes, that's your life. You're dead. You're killed. And so the Philippian jailer was about to kill himself because he assumed everybody had escaped after the earthquake. And then, um, and so, um, so this earthquake happens. He was about to kill himself thinking everybody escaped. And Paul said, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're all, we're all here. We're all here. Don't kill yourself. And the Philippian jailer's like, I don't understand. You guys could have left. You guys could have ran. My life was forfeit. What are you doing? You know, and he made the connection between Paul's singing praises to God, God, Paul honoring God in the midst of his suffering, Paul and Silas together, and then the control that somehow Paul had over all the prisoners there. Right? Somehow. And what does the Philippian jailer say? He says, Paul, what must I do to be saved? He says, Paul... He says, so he's reading this, and the Philippian jailer would have jumped up and said, yep, that's exactly what did it for me. After all that suffering, Paul and Silas are singing praises to God. The, the, the jails open up. They don't run. They keep everybody in. I knew that there was something real. I knew that there was something real about their faith, and I wanted it for myself. And that's what happens. When we stand together and opposition comes, it's a sign of destruction for them. It's a sign of the emptiness of that way of life. And it's a sign that folks who follow Jesus have something else to live for. We're not controlled by our circumstances. We're not controlled by anything other than the fact that we can sing and praise, that we can serve Jesus no matter where he calls us. And so um, Wes, one of the interns that's staying with us 
uh, over the summer here. Uh, he's doing an internship with us. I was talking with him about this, and he said, yeah, it's interesting. When things go bad, you can actually be a calming influence on other people. When you have this sense of not needing to be understood, when you, when you, um, when you live this way, when we live in unity, we're the calm ones. We're the ones that aren't panicking. We're not freaking out because we know that God's in control and we can still serve him. And pretty soon, you end up being the go-to person. Or people come to you because you have an assurance. You have a safety, a security. And so some will see it and want what we have. And then others will see it. They'll still reject it. But then our lives serve as a testimony to them. They serve as a testimony to them that there's another way to live, a way that's even more powerful and stronger. And that's what... uh, what we're aiming for. And so our, man, there's so much more to talk about in this passage. Um, Let me just point out really quickly here that Paul says in verse 29 that suffering is part of your calling, right? It says it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And let me just point this word granted. It's been granted to you. It's actually the word, it could also be translated, it's, it's a gracious gift. Okay? Gracious gift. This word is used in chapter 2 about Jesus, that God gave him the name which is above every other name. This gracious gift to Jesus was given to God as a gift. It was a gracious gift. And so Paul is actually saying here that suffering is a gracious gift to you from God. And there's all kinds of things to say about this. Let me just say that uh, in a world where suffering was seen as the punishment of the gods, right? In a world where suffering was seen as the thing that happens to bad people, Paul is saying that when you suffer, especially in this area of unity, when you suffer because you're trying to understand rather than be understood, when you're putting other people's needs ahead of your own, when you are looking to understand others and you suffer, That is a gracious gift. It's actually a sign that you are in God's favor. Okay? When you are suffering for the sake of your pursuit of unity, it means that you are smack dab in the center of God's will. Do you know how revolutionary this is? Because how often do we think that when we suffer, we must have done something wrong? And Paul is taking that thinking and turning it up on its end. When you are suffering, especially in the area of unity, you are in the center of God's will. That is God's favor upon you because it makes you look like Jesus because that's exactly what he dealt with. One author said this, Through his death on the cross, Jesus not only saved us, but he modeled for us God's way of dealing with opposition. We love them to death. We love them to death and so this then pulls us into our third point Um, not only does understanding bring unity in the church it brings unity in the world understanding comes from being understood by god okay this is verses one and two paul says if there's any encouragement if any comfort from love if any participation in the spirit and what he really means is since Right? He's not saying if this is true. He's saying since this is true. Okay, since this is all true, what he's saying is that, that these are things that you have experienced and this is why you can live in this kind of unity. 
Okay, that's where he's aiming at. He's saying that your ability to understand others, it takes strength, right? It takes, it's hard. And Paul is saying that you can't really take this step to understand others until you have been understood by God, until you have been loved by God. That's what motivates you. And that becomes the source of your strength to live this out. Okay, you have to experience God before you can step in this direction. And so how do we experience God? Well, we experience him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, if you've been encouraged by Christ, right? What he's saying is that you have the encouragement of Jesus. He suffered to give you courage. The courage that you have because he died for you, because he lived for you, that's the courage that you can share with others. Then he says, if there's any comfort in love, that's the love of God. You have been comforted by the love of God. It's his love that you share with others. And then if there's any participation in the spirit, the Holy Spirit is God's presence in you. We started with the spirit. We're ending with the spirit. And you see here that the spirit is the one who knows you intimately. He dwells within you. It's God's presence in you. You have a relationship with him. He knows you. He understands you. And it's because he understands you that you can then understand others. And what this does, this experience of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that's what gives us this affection and sympathy that verse 2 talks about. That's where these feelings of love and understanding come from, right? The affection and the sympathy. And it produces this, we call it a disposition of unity. Um, It's that we all recognize, we experience this from God, and this is what we share with others. Now, what I'm telling you today takes faith. Okay, all of this takes faith. You've got to trust that this is true, right? That you should seek to understand before you seek to be understood. That understanding really is the key to unity. How can you know that that's really the path to happiness? How can you know for sure that that's really what can make you happy? Well, I'd offer Jesus as assurance and proof that this is the road to real happiness. Because this is what Jesus did his whole life. For his whole life, only God truly understood him. Right? Nobody else understood him. Even the ones closest to him still didn't figure it out. Right? He spent his whole life serving, loving, understanding his disciples, teaching them. And it's true that he he did teach. He explained and he taught and he preached so that the kingdom could be understood, so that his mission would be understood. But what was more important to him, he didn't wait until he was understood before he sacrificed himself. He knew that in order for him to really be understood, he would have to do the most understanding thing in the world, and that was take care of your sin and mine. He knew that he'd have to give up his life and to serve so that he could make them understand. And what's amazing is that, I mean, and he he passed through death. Like, if you want to know the life that God blesses forever, it's the life of Jesus. And so if you follow him in that, if you experience his love, his service, his understanding of you, and you accept his sacrifice on your behalf, then you follow him, and that produces happiness. 
when you understand out of the fullness of God in you, understanding others before you're understood, that's what causes your life to pass through death into resurrection. It causes your life to pass through the unhappiness and controlling and lets you be free enough to understand others. Understanding is really heaven that comes to earth. And you can walk in that because you've received it if you believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the way you understand us. Thank you for ministering to us by the power of your word. Thank you that Jesus didn't wait for us to understand, but died on the cross for us. Help us, God, to stand together in unity and to strive together, together for the faith of the gospel so that we might become more unified with the folks around us and we might see your power and your spirit grow in our midst and in the lives of the folks who live and work in downtown. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.